I do hope that more and more kids are seeing themselves. But you know, it all depends on who greenlights the projects. And we haven't made much progress in, in terms of diversifying the professionals that work in publishing. So until we do that. Representation in children's literature is a matter of life and death. That's what Zeta Elliott wrote in a 2009 blog post where she advocated for the industry to take the issue seriously. She knows personally how isolating it is to not see yourself in the books you read as a kid and the impact that can have long-term. There are times when I write something, or even with poetry, I write something, I'm like, God, that's so formal. Like, why is that so formal? I'm like, oh, it sounds British. <laughs> why does it sound British? It's like, well, what were you reading? You know, what were you feeding your imagination for all those years when you were in your formative stages? Zeta is a children's author, a poet, an essayist, and an advocate for diverse representation in the publishing industry. She's perhaps best known for her 2008 book, Bird, and more recently for her Dragons in a Bag series. In this episode of The Reading Culture, Zeta shares her story about growing up Black in suburban Canada and how that experience sent her on a journey to rediscover her heritage, find her voice, and write for children what she wishes she had for herself. And stick around at the end to hear about Zeta's reading challenge for you and how you can participate. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and reading enthusiasts to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Today, we're joined by Zeta Elliott. One thing that I was really struck by when I went to your website, Zeta, was that the first thing I saw were all these pictures of your family and your history. And I think it's unusual for um, and telling. So I thought I'd maybe ask you first to just talk about the importance of connecting your history and your past to your present. That seems like something that's uh, really important to you. That is. What a fantastic question. So if I were to open the door of my office in the hallway, I always have in every apartment I live in an ancestor wall. And I am really fortunate that I seem to be the designated person in my family who gets all the best photos. And so somebody will dig up an old black and white photo of a great, great, great grandparent and they'll send it to me. So I have this amazing collection of photographs. And when it came time to design my website, I I didn't want a whole lot of pictures of me. I think I had just had my first photo shoot and was like sort of horrified by the results. And just thought, you know, I do write a lot about history, about ancestry. I very much want to make the past feel present and to feel relevant to young readers. It feels very relevant to me. I think about my ancestors a lot. And because I do walk past a wall of them every single day, I'm very aware of sort of the debt that I owe and how much they sacrificed and how different their lives and their dreams were uh, from mine. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, uh, was deeply invested in genealogy because she believed herself to be a descendant of Bishop Richard Allen, of one of his brothers, really, who left the Philadelphia area and came to Canada probably in the 1830s and settled on some land and sort of became committed to integration, which meant they intermarried deliberately. And then they weren't 
trying to pass for white, but they stopped talking about their black ancestry because oh my god, it's like the vanishing half. Like a real basically, story like the you know, half. like if you if you thought you were descended from a bishop, one of the most significant black figures in the U.S., you'd probably be talking about that a lot. But in my grandmother's family, there was sort of this pact that said we're not going to talk about it, and so. You know, my great grandfather, he always checked colored. I mean, nobody was nobody was saying we're white, but over a couple of generations, they started to look white. So even my mother, you know, my mother is technically an octoroon, so she's one eighth black, but she presents as white, identifies as white. Her mother, my grandmother was a quadroon, presented as white, but identified as Negro. So it's kind of this complicated history but also one that's marked by silence and shame. And uh, it's so interesting because people will say, oh, your ancestors must be so proud. And I'm like, mm, some of them, <laughs> not all of them. There's <laughs> a few of them who wish, you know, my mother hadn't brought blackness back into the family by marrying an Afro-Caribbean man, but it's a complicated history. And I think I feel so grateful that my grandmother, you know, said to her father, I'm not going to be quiet. I think it's so interesting you have these really strong connections to your past because um, you oftentimes like refer to yourself and you are like a futurist, you know, and you're writing about the, like a lot of your work is, but it's always like bringing the past into the future, which I think is a pretty fascinating thing. Yeah. I think a lot of people, you know, are so enamored with Afrofuturism and I, I don't always feel like I belong because I do tend to be backward looking, but that is part of Afrofuturism is that you look back in order to go forward, which is also the Sankofa principle. And so, yeah, you can't build a future if you haven't understood how the foundation we're standing on was built. So yeah, it's important. Zeta's journey to rediscovering her history is one that she's deeply committed to. In her early young adult years, she made the bold decision to move away from her childhood home in search of a more genuine connection to her community and her roots. Zeta grew up partly in a small town outside Toronto, Canada named Pickering and partly in a Toronto suburb named Scarborough. But while Canada provided a safe and stable life, Zeta was finding it difficult to connect to her identity as a black girl. As she reached adulthood, she began to understand what had been missing from her reading experiences in her youth and how that impacted her voice. I felt pretty blessed to grow up in Pickering. Again, I think because my parents were teachers, that was definitely an advantage. My mother loved Ezra Jack Keats. I think if she hadn't, I wouldn't have had any books with black characters. So because she used those books in her classroom, I had those exposure to those books in the classroom as well. There was nothing at the library that had black children in it. I mean, just nothing. And I, I remember reading books that were really old, like from the 1930s, maybe 1940s, 1950s. Uh, and of course they seemed new to me, but they were, it was sort of Dick and Jane, <laughs> little blonde haired, blue eyed children with lollipops. Like it was really sort of this kind of vintage children's literature and lots of books about animals. And then because Canada is a British former British colony, there was a lot of British content that I was reading as well. When you're a kid and if you love to read, you love stories. You aren't, you aren't always aware of the fact that you're being erased from those stories or you don't yet have the expectation that you should be in those books. So I think I did have kind of a golden era of reading where I just loved to read and I would read anything that I could get my hands on. And then maybe by the time I was 10, I started to notice that there was a problem and that 
when I went to the library, the public library, the librarian would pick a book, you know, by Virginia Hamilton or Walter Dean Myers and sort of be like, you should read this. And then I resented, you know, being handed a book with some weird 1970s black kid on the cover and, you know, why is she giving this to me? And, you know, I read the Brontes. And so, yeah, it was, it was so messed up. But, but by the time, you know, I, I got to college, you know, university in Canada, then I was exposed to post-colonial literature and uh, Jamaica Kincaid and Toni Morrison. And then you start to understand that there's this whole other storytelling tradition uh, of which you can participate and appreciate. And well, that's when you get angry because <laughs> then you're like, there are all these other books out there, right? Like right. what was wrong with my library? What was wrong with my school? What was wrong with my parents? Like why, why wasn't I given these options? And then you blame yourself because I chose to study British Victorian poetry. I, I could have been studying something else. Did you always want to write, by the way? Was that a thing that you liked doing when you were younger? Were you always... I liked stories and I liked storytelling. I didn't... I wrote. You wrote for school, right? Because you had to. But I, I wouldn't have been writing at home until I was a teenager. And then I had an English teacher that said, you could be a writer. But up until then, I just... I liked having an audience. So if you're a good storyteller, you can, <laughs> you can get an audience in the schoolyard. So I learned to tell stories that way. Do you remember any of the ones that you told? Absolutely, because it was all ripped from the headlines of my life. And <laughs> my parents had divorced and my father, my parents both grew up in the Pilgrim Holiness Church. So, you know, girls can't wear pants and no secular music. It was pretty extreme. And then, you know, my dad sort of like discovered R&B <laughs> and he had like a black power moment. And then he went back to his black girlfriend from, you know, high school. So... It got really complicated really quickly, and then my mom sued for divorce. How old were you when that happened? Seven or eight. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I, I often write about kids who are seven, eight, nine, ten years old, is that was a really kind of hectic moment for me. And that's when storytelling kicked into full mode because, you know, I, we had to go spend weekends with my dad, and it was just chaos. It was almost always chaos, and he would be introducing people that I did not want in my life, and I would be confronting them, and then I would be confronting him, and I had been a daddy's girl, and so then suddenly he saw me as disloyal, and so yeah, I, you know, every Monday kids would be like, ooh, how was your weekend? You know, these were white middle class <laughs> like kids. Gather around the Zeta campfire. Basically, we're about to hear basically some stories. <laughs> have some black pathology for your entertainment. So yeah, I looking back on it, I wish I maybe hadn't embellished as much as I did, but I didn't have to embellish much because it was crazy. Like a lot of young creatives searching for culture and opportunity, Zeta was drawn to New York City. Even as a kid, she felt the power of its community. I went to New York when I was, I think, six and was like, whoa, this is a lot. <laughs> that was my first majority Black environment. New York is where, as an adult, Zeta would find her craft, her voice, and the stories she wanted to tell. But finding that voice was something she would struggle with for a long time. She had a lot of unlearning to do about the world of literature she had been exposed to, the world of literature that nearly erased her and her identity. It's a strange thing to sort of grapple with your own hybridity and to say, I want to write like Dickens and then realize Dickens had no great love for black people. And so why are you trying to sound like someone who, you know, doesn't actually have much respect or interest in you and your history and your communities and, you know, grappling with the history of colonialism and 
sharing my writing with a friend for the first time. She's from Detroit, this black woman. And she's like, oh my God, you sound so British. And, you know, five years earlier, that would have been the hugest compliment. And then I was just like mortified. I'm like, oh my God, I sound British. What am I going to do? And so trying to sound like an African-American from Georgia, I am not an African-American from Georgia. So what did you do? Well, Jane Cortez has this great poem where she says, you know, find your own voice and use it. Use your own voice and find it. And I think that's really sort of just what you have to do is write your way through it. Just keep writing and writing and writing and then read it out loud and listen to yourself and see if you hear your actual authentic voice. Uh, It is, it takes a long, long time. There are still moments, I'm working on book five of the Dragon series right now. And there are times when I write something or even with poetry, I write something. I'm like, God, that's so formal. Like, why is that so formal? I'm like, oh, it sounds British. (laughs) Why does it sound British? It's like, well, what were you reading? You know, what were you feeding your imagination for all those years when you were in your formative stages? So I can't uproot all of those early influences, but I can at the very least be aware of them and then engage them in some ways, if not erase them. What do you think about kids today who are similarly like how how you are coming from these, you know, variety of backgrounds and growing up in this world? Do you think that it seems like children's literature and the world around us has made that an easier thing to accept and to like fully, you know, understand and self-realize, you know, earlier for kids who are hybrids or (laughs) mixed? We're not there yet, but... It's certainly a whole lot better. You know, we're definitely not there yet. We have so many realities that are not being represented. And, you know, publishing tends to go for whatever sells. So they'll get one narrative and stick with it. And then they want 20 more examples of that. So it can be pretty difficult to find really original intersectional identities in children's literature still. But have to say, you know, every once in a while I look and see what's on Netflix and holy cow, like I could never have seen any kind of fantasy film that had so many kids of color in it. And sometimes they're the star of the story. Like that's just incredible to me. And there are a generation, you know, a whole generation of kids, that's all they know. They would never go back to a film that had an entirely white cast, which was all I had growing up, right? And you prayed there might be a Billy Dee Williams or somebody who got to come on screen and do something besides die. Just looking Um, for that one. (laughs) The one, please, and let them live to the end of the film. So, So yeah, I do think in other forms of entertainment, we're doing better. Literature, like I said, it's been slow and it may not last. We tend to get these sort of peaks And then they plateau and we go back to the standard traditional representations. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up. Here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand, come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. That poem was called Won't You Celebrate With Me by Lucille Clifton from her 1993 book, Book of Light. Clifton was a Black poet and two-time Pulitzer finalist from New York State. Like Zeta, 
Lucille Clifton was dedicated to discovering her own heritage and forging her way as a proud Black writer. The poem is one that has inspired Zeta immensely throughout her life. So that's a poem that gets circulated quite a lot. (laughs) It means a lot to a lot of people, but it's just so brilliant because it feels so true. There's that moment in all of us where we think, I want to be X, but if you haven't actually seen someone else do it, you're not sure that you can, right? Who did I see to be except myself? So when I was struggling with finding my voice and wanting to be a writer, and then all of a sudden I discovered there were all these Black women for centuries who had been telling stories and who had been making art, and then you just realize you're not alone. So even though you're human, I love her reference, you know, we're, we're starshine and clay, so we're humans. I saw you reference that too in, your other, in one of your poems, right? I do, right? So then I'm, you know, riffing off of this poem because there are so many ways in which it echoes. I love that. It's like you're in conversation with all these other poems that are in your book, you know? It's like sampling. I try to explain that to kids. It's like signifying is a big part of the Black vernacular tradition. And it's, you can see it in hip hop, right? And so a lot of times those younger kids, they don't know what the sample is, but we know the original track that's being sampled. And so anyone who knows Lucille Clifton's poetry will hear the echo of it in, in some of my work. And I am just so grateful. It's an opportunity for us to look back and say, how did we deal with this in the past? Because we've always dealt with this for black women, you know, other people trying to control our bodies, that's nothing new. So. We have a lot to learn from our ancestors and they they left us the blueprint. So we just have to honor it. You know, hearing you speak about Lucille Clifton and bringing her poetry into your beautiful poetry book, Say Her Name, which we were just discussing, it almost feels like you're building your own written ancestor wall. Absolutely. Like they're, they're like beacons, right? They're the light. When you're floundering around, you can look across the sea and be like, oh, somebody found land and they're over there sending me a signal. And if I can just get over there, you know, maybe I'll be okay too. A theme you'll notice in Zeta's story is pushing through when the world around her is full of barriers. She fought for her heritage, her voice, and she continues to fight for that voice to be heard. Dragons in a Bag is her breakthrough series, but Zeta has been writing children's stories for decades. So Zeta, in your early years as a writer, you had to self-publish because the publishing industry wasn't very receptive to your voice. Now you've won a Caldecott honor and you're in demand and that must be vindicating. So two questions for you here. First, are readers going to see more of your early work now? And second, should we be celebrating this seeming reversal in the industry? A Place Inside of Me is a book that came out in 2020 and I wrote that 20 years ago. So there are still stories, if we can get an editor, yeah, if we can get an editor to look at some of the stories I wrote when I started writing for kids in 2001, if we can even get them in front of an editor, uh, sometimes they sell. And then, you know, 20 years later, sometimes they win big awards. Like a Caldecott honor, right? And it's, <laughs> it's just, it's really frustrating because that I think people, because of the success of the Dragon books, people think of me as sort of a new author. And I'm like, oh, new to you. <laughs> I've been doing this a very long time. Right. It's that old thing of like people who are like overnight success and you're like, no, it's not an overnight and success. And it's what my professor used to call the the problem of exemplarity. 
he was talking about Frederick Douglass. So Frederick Douglass is this enslaved individual who frees himself, teaches himself, he's self-educated, and then he writes this brilliant narrative. And it ends up almost becoming used as a defense of slavery because it says, look, we have this system that produced a genius like Frederick Douglass. It's like, whoa, that is not what what we're arguing for here. We're arguing for the abolition of slavery. But people look at my self-published books, especially the ones that are selling well, and they'll say, well, that is just wonderful the way that you turned, you know, lemons into lemonades and you made the best of a bad situation. It's like, no, (laughs) I should not have had to self-publish 20 of my books. It shouldn't be that way. And how many people did we lose, like, how many people like were lost and didn't didn't have that wherewithal or it's not even wherewithal who just didn't absolutely couldn't for whatever reason you know continue and we'll never know all the stories we've lost because they were rejected and the doors were closed so many times that somebody just said it must be me <laughs> i'm not cut up for this you've written a lot of stories in your career and seem to have a good understanding of what publishers are willing to work with and what they're not Does this knowledge now inform your writing at all? So I would say if I have, I have 25 unpublished picture book manuscripts on my computer and I could divide that list of 25 into two piles and I know which ones I will absolutely have to (laughs) self-publish because there is no way an editor working today is going to acquire and publish that. They'll either see it as being, you know, do a cost-benefit analysis and say it's too niche or it's too sad or all these things that I hear. Uh, And then I could, you know, look at the other list, the other pile and say, I think these are really sellable. In fact, I think this is highly commercial. You know, we see a lot of books about animals and cute little animal stories being written by white men. And they're best-selling, huge, hugely successful books but it's never, black people aren't allowed to tell those stories. So people will say to me, oh, you write such you know, heartfelt, serious stories about addiction and police brutality. And I'm like, I write fart stories. Like I write all kinds of books, but you're seeing- I can be all what of it. gets through the gate. Yeah, you know, we could, we could do everything. I think Phil Nell is a scholar, white male scholar based in Kansas. And he said, you know, genre is the new Jim Crow, riffing off of Michelle Alexander's book. And there's a way in which the door opens to say, okay, more Black authors, you can come in, but we still want you to write picture book biographies, historical fiction, realistic fiction about gun violence. And now they're expanding a little bit more to fantasy, but it needs to be African fantasy based on West African mythology. And so you still end up being very limited by what these white editors are curating, which is exactly what it is. It's curation. So you can't actually say that what has been traditionally published accurately reflects African-American interests because those are simply the books that got greenlit. So if anybody wanted to see my full quote unquote range, they would have to look at the 40 books that I have published, two thirds of which are self-published. And you would really need to look at the self-published books to say, well, that's what's getting rejected by the traditional publishing industry. You know, I do, lamb and calf, butt butts. I bet I'm gonna have to self-publish that because I bet no editor is gonna want it. In 2009, Zeta wrote a blog post titled, Something Like an Open Letter to the Children's Publishing Industry. In it, she pleaded with the industry to take the lack of representation in books seriously. She wrote, What I'm trying to say to children's publishers is that the lack of books for children in our communities is a matter of life and death. 
I'm not asking you to level the playing field as a favor to people of color. I'm asking you to work with us in our efforts to transform children's lives. Isn't that why you chose this field in the first place? 2009 is, as of this recording, 13 years ago. And while a lot of progress has been made since then, there's still a long way to go. Book bans and challenges, especially those targeting stories with black and brown main characters, are increasing. And the politicization of libraries and the industry writ large is threatening the progress we've seen. Zeta has seen this battle ongoing for decades, most often at the front lines herself. I was curious about what she predicts for the future. I asked her if we were going to continue to see doors open for diverse writers and characters. This is what she said. I wish I were that optimistic. I'm not. (laughs) I think, no, we're going to, we have this blip and then it's going to plateau. I think where I feel a bit more optimistic is in the technology that makes it possible for us to have other avenues to tell our stories. There is still a lot of stigma against self-publishing and it's still a huge challenge to get even independent bookstores that are, you know, trying to champion authors. You know, they often won't support indie authors. So libraries won't add indie titles if they haven't been reviewed and review outlets won't review indie titles. So we, we still have a lot of structures that need to be broken down. But in the midst of that, people are finding ways. I was at a book fest last month organized here by a bookstore owned by a Latina and Nina Sanchez. And she, you know, pulled together 20, you know, self-published authors here in Chicago. We're everywhere. Uh, We don't get invited. (laughs) We don't get asked to the table. And then she just created her own event. So that's fantastic. And I think if we start to see more of that and people realize you don't need a big record label to tell you what to listen to. You don't need a radio station to tell you what you listen to, right? Kids don't even listen. I don't even know if they listen to radio stations anymore. No, they're like listening to TikTok, which it's like kind of similar, right? Like they're listening. And then that's now those record labels are all like figuring out what's what to do this way. So I guess that could be like- Scrambling. That's right. But that could be like a- foreshadowing of what's happened, of what could, what is possible. It's that disruption, right? All we need is that kind of disruption that sets people to thinking, oh, wow, we, we need to do things differently. And then people become aware that there are alternatives because so many people don't even know that Black authored books are published by Random House or Simon & Schuster or HarperCollins because they don't market books to Black readers. And so if these kinds of book fairs and book festivals and indie authors, if they can have a direct access to their own audience, then they don't need anyone to give them the stamp of approval or to open the gate or greenlight their project. And I think, I hope in 20 years, we'll, we'll be seeing more of that. That again was Zeta Elliott, children's author, poet, and essayist. Zeta's Beanstack Reading Challenge is for middle-grade fantasy novels set in Chicago. You can learn more about that and how you can participate by visiting thereadingculturepod.com. Check it out and let us know what you think. And now it's time to celebrate this episode's Beanstack Featured Librarian. Today we have Kelly McDaniel, Assistant Director for the Piedmont Regional Library System in Northeast Georgia. We had her spill her secrets on how she gets kids excited about reading. I think the secret sauce to getting kids really excited about reading kind of contains three main points. I think enthusiasm is really important. 
I love to hear people speak about something that they are enthusiastic about. So I try to share with children what I'm reading, what I've enjoyed lately, what really excites me about books. I also think modeling is really important. I read, they see me reading, I want them to know that I read and we talk about books. Um, The third trick is letting them quit. I heard about a two chapter rule. As long as they're willing to read two chapters, and then they decide they don't like the book, they can quit it and put it down and never read it ever, ever again. I really want children to read books that they like. I think that is what gets them hooked for life on reading. So if we can find something they like, great. If they get a little bit into it, decide they don't like it, they get to put it away forever. This has been The Reading Culture. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, And currently, I'm reading Solito by Javier Zamora and The Inquisitor's Tale by Adam Gidwitz. If you enjoyed today's show, please show some love and rate, subscribe, and share the reading culture among your friends and networks. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the show. Thanks for joining and keep reading. Keep reading.